for the word of the Lord. Thank you, Peggy, for that significant reading. It's a long reading, and uh, it actually comes as part of our regular lectionary readings as we, in the season of Lent, follow Jesus' journey from Galilee towards Jerusalem. And this is from John's Gospel, fits within that context. The passage is um, a significant feature within John's Gospel. And when a uh, more than a passing reference is included in a um, gospel material, you know that it's highly regarded, quite literally, to have a, a page of manuscript to be written for these the gospel materials would be about $800 per page. So you don't just go and, you know, think about having a long slab of material without realising that this is a, a significant part of John's gospel. And it's a passage that is popular for good reason because it speaks into so many different um, levels of uh, what it tells us about the mission and ministry of Jesus. I'm going to start first of all by putting it in the context in John's Gospel. We have the, the woman who is presented to us in stark contrast within the context of John's Gospel with what has gone just before. The woman is a Samaritan woman. Um, she is coming in the midday sun, and I'll tell a bit more about that in a minute. Just in the wider context of John's Gospel, in chapter 2, we have had this, the uh, dramatic story of Jesus at the wedding in Cana, of turning water into wine. And we're told that Jesus did many other signs and wonders and was really grabbing people's attention because of his, um, what he was doing in front of them. And at the end of chapter 2 in John, it says many people believed in him because of his signs and wonders, but Jesus did not trust himself to them. In other words, in John's gospel, there are levels of faith or trust where just to believe in Jesus as someone who's capable of doing some pretty amazing signs and wonders is a not a sufficient level of faith and trust. And so we come to chapter 3, which is Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is highly regarded. He's a Pharisee. He's of very high social status. He is wealthy. He's influential. He's a teacher of the law. He's a theologian of respect. And he comes to Jesus in the dead of night. And he struggles to engage with Jesus' teaching. And the way that John crafts it just how Nicodemus responds to Jesus is up in the air. Now, later in the gospel, we know he does return and is a follower of Jesus and around the circumstances of Jesus' uh, death and burial. But we also know that um, uh, if you were to come up with a contrast to Nicodemus, as I say, male, highly regarded, you would probably come up with someone you say, well, okay, let's think of a contrast to Nicodemus, a female, not a Jew, maybe a Samaritan, maybe someone who's ostracised by the society, so she's been held at a distance, and let's bring her in the middle of full midday sun. John is deliberately contrasting these two characters and presents this woman as a model of how 
people should be digging deeper into what they understand Jesus to be beyond the signs and wonders, going deeper in faith and responding in a way in which is entering into the mission and ministry of Jesus. That is why a whole large, best part of a chapter is devoted to this episode. It is very significant. So against that background, we can see an exa- another example of many in Jesus' ministry, of an outsider on so many social and cultural levels. A Samaritan, um, just something of the backstory between the Samaritans and the Jews, the Judeans, shared a common history, common story. They all claimed Abraham as their forefather, as their ancestor. They claimed Jacob, the Jacob of this well, whose name was changed to Israel, that this was our well, our space together. They were together with this people of Israel right up through the time of King David, right up to the time of David's son Solomon and his glory. They were all one people. And after Solomon, when the time came to uh, appoint a successor to Solomon and they asked the question, those in the, the ten and a half of the northern tribes said, are you going to be like your father Solomon in terms of taxation and taking our sons for your army and our daughters to serve in your palace? And the king at the time, the, the, the successor in Jerusalem, said, you haven't seen anything yet. So the northern kingdom said, thanks, but no thanks. We'll set up our own capital city in the north and we'll set up our own centre of worship on Mount Gerizim. And so this big split occurred within the 12 tribes. Ten and a half went to the north. One and a half, the Judeans, plus the, half the Levites, or some of the Levites, stayed around Judea and became the Jews. This division lasted centuries and centuries. And this greater split occurred when the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians and they intermarried with uh, Assyrians and the Jews, the Judeans, looked down their noses and said, well, that's typical. They split themselves off. They didn't worship in Jerusalem and on Mount Zion and they're now um, the epitome of faithless people of God. They're not in the covenant. So this big split occurred between the Samaritans and the Judeans. Now, one interesting note is that when Jesus is travelling from the north, from Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee and the hills around there, to move down to Jerusalem, the most direct route is to go through Samaria. But the Jews would never do that. They would take a longer route around the other side of the River Jordan, avoid going into Samaritan territory, then come back into Jerusalem. But John says, and these little notes are of significance, he's a great storyteller, John says it was necessary for Jesus to travel through the Samaritan territory. And some of the Jews would say, no, there's another road he could take, it's longer, but it's what we all take. When John uses that phrase, it is necessary, what he means is it is necessary for the mission and ministry of Jesus. It was necessary for his mission, in effect, to not just go into Samaritan territory, 
but to meet this woman. It was part of the plan. So we have this example of Jesus entering into a uh, Samaritan woman who has had a, uh, a messy prior history. Now we're told later, and I'll touch on it briefly a bit later as well, but Jesus it's revealed that she had five husbands. And it's not an Oscar Wilde to say, look, to lose one husband is careless, but to lose five is, you know, beyond the pale. Actually, that wasn't overly uncommon, remembering that girls were married at the age of 12 to 13. And they'll marry males who are often in their 20s or 30s. So it wasn't uncommon for the males, the men, to die before the women and they'll become widows. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, it was also not uncommon for the very patriarchal culture of the day for the men to divorce the wives if they became dissatisfied or if they saw a better option. If they burnt a meal, they would set aside a, a wife. So one way or another, this woman has been through a very difficult, messy time. The problem is the more previous marriages you have, the less your social value as a potential bride becomes. So she's in a very vulnerable space, having been in that case, and it's probably reflected by the fact that she's come in the midday sun. Ordinarily, women, when they ventured into the public space, would go as a group. And they'll go as a group in the cool of the morning or the cool of the early evening. To come alone in the middle of the day does suggest that she is avoiding others and doing her business. And that is the world where Jesus and his mission and ministry takes root. That in itself is an example for us. And to note, just in a way in which John is presenting her, and I'll touch on this at the conclusion, that she becomes... Um, one of the great first evangelists who has a productive heading out and to tell the message about Jesus. And John presents her very clearly as an evangelist, as part of this Jesus movement, as a worker within the kingdom. So we have the woman um, and this exchange with Jesus. And the first thing we note is that Jesus sees her. We have a lot of passages of the day of uh, some of the um, Jewish males expressing how they uh, took pride in either saying to women in the public space, the market space, you shouldn't be here, or if you are, I'm just going to not see you. I'll ignore the fact that you were there. As if I'll go about it as if you don't even exist. And they actually have passages saying how men boasted of that still does occur today in some parts of the world of that culture, sadly. You think about some of the world of the Taliban and others, that's the culture that we're talking about. But Jesus sees the woman and doesn't just see her in terms of uh, someone else who's there. He sees her as a person with a story, with needs, with a spiritual thirst that he has been sent to, to engage with. The other intriguing note that we have is that Jesus is the one with a need. Most other episodes, people come to Jesus with a need. 
But here Jesus is tired from his journey. He's thirsty. And he's asking the assistance of this woman. That's interesting, isn't it? So in this exchange, we see a significant part of the early gospel tradition because they knew this says a lot about the movement that has now gathered in the name of Jesus. So first of all, we see that woman was surprised for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And he said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why, do you ask, why are you asking me for a drink? Then Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you. Jesus in his mission has come with a gift. And who it is who is, you are speaking to? You would ask me and I'll give you that gift. Now the gift Jesus initially talks about is living water. So the first exchange is over uh, water and here he describes it as living water. Water that is moving, that is lively. And the phrase simply means water that is running, running water. Now, most of us, I suspect, at some stage in our wanders up into the hills or into the outback somewhere, if you come across a billabong and there's no running water into it and it's dreading down and it's looking pretty dark, what are you likely to conclude about that water? Stagnant. And if you're listening to good medical advice, you think, probably not a good idea to drink that water. So that's the contrast. The living water is when you see a, a stream that is running, you know that's more drinkable. And that's what you look for. So Jesus is saying what I'm talking about is running water. And initially the woman gets confused and says, well, hang on, it's a deep well and you haven't got a bucket, or you haven't got a jar, you haven't even got a cup. How are you going to give me water, running water? And then Jesus points to the fact he's talking about spiritual water and that contrast is one that we can sit with a bit up until now she's been drinking from stagnated water it's water that has been polluted that's not been life-giving it actually brings in all sorts of grief of ill health spiritually and I suspect in fact I know that the world in which we live in today has just as much polluted spiritual water that people are tasting and it can be toxic and we see the damage it's causing so this speaks into our own experience as well the offer of this running water this living water is an offer that we can receive just as much the woman responds as a model engagement with Jesus a disciple in the making where would I find this living water, she says. Then he talks about it. It is, becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them. That is where we find this living water. One of the key ministries of the church, of our church and of all churches, is to be a fount of living, running water. That we are drinking not from polluted or stagnated water, but we are offering in not just in our services but our, all our ministry it actually informs beautifully our image of being a sanctuary church a church that is well watered and has these streams available in God's grace the gift that God provides but Jesus then 
you can almost imagine a pause in the conversation and you think, you know, get those pauses in conversation, okay, where do I go with that? So Jesus takes it a whole new direction. That um, she takes her by surprise. Go and get your husband, Jesus said. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. You're right. You don't have a husband for you've had five husbands and you aren't even married to the one you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. How would you respond? Because I know how I would respond. If I engaged with someone over a coffee or something and started a conversation, then suddenly it becomes clear that they know everything about me. I'll take a step back. That'll be pretty scary. I can tell you, if you knew everything about me, that'll be scary. Yet the way in which Jesus engages with her, it's not pushing her back, it's drawing her closer. Imagine again, as is the case, that God says to us, that Jesus says to us, I know everything about you. And I love you. I'm not pushing you away. I'm not saying go and get yourself sorted out and become worthy and come back to me. I welcome you. The living water I have, I'm not snatching away because you don't deserve it. It is available to enter into that space as you are. That is saying something powerful about Jesus and the way in which he's conveying that. So the woman responds positively, Sir, literally it's Lord. The woman said, you must be a prophet to know that. She is growing in her faith, in her understanding of who Jesus is. Then she changes the conversation. Whether it's to get away from the discussion about her husbands or not, I'm not sure. But she says, "Um, can we talk theology? She moves the conversation to talk theology. So tell me, she says, Why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? And so they go into exchange about what does it mean to worship. Jesus has a theological conversation with her. And remember that the testimony of this episode must have come from the woman. No one else is there as a witness. This is how she has recalled her engagement with Jesus. The time is coming, Jesus said, indeed it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. doesn't matter where it is, Gerizim or Jerusalem, the Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. God is spirit, and so those who worship him must worship in spirit, from within, and in truth. At the end of our service, I've actually got a bit of a radical song to play. It's a more lively one. We have a mix of music. And the song's called Cages. And it talks about the invitation to step out of our cages of having masks and entering into that world where we have the freedom of truth, which can be scary. But that's the to come. So the woman said, as she's growing in his conversation, he said, well, I know that the Messiah is coming, the one who's called Christ, and when he comes, he'll he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Now, that's the first time in John's Gospel that Jesus has actually been public about it. In other contexts, when people have been asking him, are you the Messiah? He 
has a, a response that responds about the Son of Man has come. This is the first time he's gone public with it. And it is to the Samaritan woman. And the context that it's a Samaritan, not a Jew, is significant. The, the Jews, those based around Jerusalem and Judea, modelled what their expectation of the Messiah would be like King David. They were looking for a king, a military ruler, which is why Jesus was wary about their perceptions about the Messiah, because that wasn't his agenda. But he doesn't have that baggage here, so he's upfront and open about it. And how does she respond to it? Notice even the words, I am. That ring any bells? How does God name himself in the burning bush? I am. Jesus is going public for the first time in John's Gospel to this woman. And how did she respond? She, the disciples come back, and I'm going to show a clip in a minute to show a bit more about that engagement. She left the jar beside the well, ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see. And in John's Gospel, that phrase is the phrase that's used of an evangelist. Someone who is engaged with Jesus tells others, come and see. And the response isn't just they believe because of her word. Initially, they believed enough to come and encounter Jesus themselves. And they say, now that you've introduced us to Jesus, we believe what he is saying because we can see it for ourselves. That's the role of an evangelist. And that is precisely how John is presenting this woman in the gospel. Her testimony becomes a fruitful one. She becomes one of the harvesters that Jesus talks about. And they say, stay with us. So Jesus stays with them for two days. In the Orthodox tradition, they fill that story out. They give her a name, Fatinium. And they say that Jesus stayed with her in her household. We don't know that, but it's not unimaginable. So the people came streaming from the village to see him. When we conclude our services from communion and we receive the bread and the wine, we are receiving that same promise that Jesus makes to us. And we're saying we will receive it. If we are to be true to this example, we deepen our knowledge of Jesus into recognising that he is God in, in our midst. And we can engage in him in spirit and in truth. At the end of our service, in a communion service, we have words led by the service leader. Go in peace. To enjoy a good coffee? No. Go in peace. To love and serve the Lord. It drives us to actions, to model exactly what she is doing here. I'm going to show a clip now. It goes for about eight minutes. Um, it could do it this service. Didn't do it at the earlier service, so just... You can shake and say, yes, because we can do this. Um... It's from The Chosen. Now, I need to clarify, The Chosen is not trying to take the text of the Bible and present it. Um, that's not their intention. They want to, in effect, take the sketch of the Bible and colour in the, the background a bit more. So they give more life and context. They're not pretending it is just it is the actual words. I thought twice about the clip because in this engagement... Um, Jesus starts telling the woman about each of the husbands by name. 
And I thought, well, the text doesn't actually say that, does it? Except, I realised, she said, he told me everything I did. There's more that Jesus actually said to the woman. And that's precisely the types of things that she said. He knew it. He knew everything. And that's where they sort of convey that. Be really interested over the coffee afterwards, um, or tea or whatever else you have, um, to, to get your impressions of this clip. What, what, is, what strikes you about it? What you might find helpful? It also conveys more about the disciples. There's a wonderful line they capture really well. They've gone off to get food for Jesus, and they come back and Jesus is saying, I don't need any food. And they're standing here with some food and saying, oh, has someone else brought him some food? It's actually a joke. Listen to the clip. 